Well, this morning, as we continue in our study through the book of Luke, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope that you do, find your way to Luke chapter 5. We'll be picking up starting in uh, verse 33 here in just a little bit. But today in our study through Luke, we're going to encounter Jesus teaching about how his coming to earth changes everything. And that's what the gospel does. Isn't that right? The gospel changes everything. And, and it replaces the old covenant with its law of rules, with its obligations, with its festivals and all the rituals that had to be maintained and replaces that with a righteousness that is apart from the law obtained through Christ. This new economy, this new covenant whereby God through Christ reaches out to us and establishes with us this new life. Covering all the things that we could not measure up to. Ultimately, the law becomes this tutor, Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, that points us to Christ. Because over and over again, through that law, we find ourselves to be less than sufficient. We find ourselves to be sinners. And we find ourselves needing something more than what we have. Just by our own efforts, by our own merits, by our own rituals. And this is by far the greatest change that has ever occurred in redemptive history. The fact that the sinless one would stand in as a substitute for those of us who are sinners and alienated from God. Because God was in Christ disclosing a new way to come to him. No longer would the blood of bulls and goats be required. This sacrificial system of the Old Covenant was transforming into this grace-saturated New Covenant of righteousness that fulfilled all that the Old Covenant had once pointed to. And all that was taking place right before the eyes of those who lived in Jesus' day. Even as they were comfortably settled into their old ways, this change came sweeping through like a whirlwind. And now they had to make a decision. What are they going to do with this change that God is bringing to pass? You can't chart a greater time of change on the timeline of redemptive history than this one single event. Change. Change. That's an interesting word, isn't it? You either love it or you hate it, right? And it's not always the same depending on what changes you're dealing with, right? Sometimes... We have changes that we're happy to go along with. Other times there are changes that we really just go kicking and screaming against, right? And there's usually a few factors that determine whether we're going to hate change or whether we're going to love change. And here they are. One one is, what's it going to require of me, right? What's my level of investment going to be when it comes to dealing with this change? Another would be, what, what benefit is it going to produce for me, right? I, I mean, I'm willing to invest a little bit if that means that the benefit is something that I can weigh and see that there's going to be a positive outcome out of. And then another evaluation is, how important to me is the old way? And sometimes it's that third quality that can leave churches in a really irreparable sort of state as they begin to put all of their investment in the color of the carpet or the color of the pews or how we do this or that or, or whether or not we're singing a, a song that we really like so much in history and, and we, we become so attached to the old ways and the old things that we're just not open to the idea of change. 
and the way that we as a church are going to function so long as I am enabled by God to be a shepherd over this flock is that you can expect our methodology to change, but you should never expect our message to change because the the gospel is the timeless truth that Jesus has come to ransom wretched sinners like me, and that's not going to change, my friends. What does change is a variety of factors in the society around us, right? And so we have to apply the gospel. We have to uh, uh, ensure that the gospel is being heard and communicated through the avenues of the society in which we live. And yet oftentimes we just don't like that word. We don't like change. I heard about a middle-aged man who decided to make a trip to the movies with his teenage daughter after spending many years away from the movie theaters. He'd wanted to stay away from that because he was just tired of, of going and tired of, of being involved in movies. So he'd lost his interest in the movies after his teenage years. But now here he is in his middle age. He's going with his teenage daughter to see this movie that she really wants to see. So she drug him along to see the movie. They opted for the IMAX 3D movie experience. So each ticket was nearly $18. Then they came to the concessions, which was another $15 a piece for popcorn and a drink. So now this man's total was up to $66, and he had had enough. So he barked over at the man who was working the concession stand, and he said, when I used to come to the movies, I was able to get my ticket and my popcorn and my drink for about $5. Well, the concession stand attendant seemed pretty amazed at this. But he thought he could help the man see the benefits of the change that had happened in this theater that increased the price. So he looked at the man and said, I think you're really going to enjoy, enjoy your trip here today, sir. As you enter the theater, you'll notice that we now have full color and sound. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself resistant to change? I think we all do, if we're honest, right? And there's times when we ought to resist change. There are some things that we must kick against, that we must defend. We must defend, for example, the integrity of the gospel, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, as we read in the scriptures. But some people live with this sort of mentality that if it's new, it's better, and that's not always the case. But not all change is bad either. And in fact, I have found that this greatest change in all of redemptive history that we're going to be looking at today is the most wonderful change that I have ever embraced and will ever embrace in all of my life. And many of you will give testimony to that same thing. Maybe you're here today and you've been reluctant to embrace the change that Jesus offers to you. You're just not sure if you can handle what this change will require of you. You're just not sure if it's worth the investment for you. You're just not willing to let go of the old, comfortable life. Well, Jesus' words to those who are resisting change in these verses that we're going to look at here today together are for you. We're in this series through the Gospel of Luke that I titled Outcasts, A Gospel for the Rejected. Where we left off two weeks ago was Jesus in the midst of a party of those outcasts. If you'll remember, there was a a guy named Levi who was a tax collector. 
which meant that he was a fraud. He was cheating individuals. He was stealing away extra. He would charge more tax than was required from the government out of his own people to take and give to the Roman government, and he would keep the excess of that to himself. He was gaining wealth off of his willingness to cheat others. And as Jesus comes to him, Jesus says, follow me. And Levi, who's also known as Matthew, you might know him from the Gospel of Matthew, as he's the author of that Gospel of the New Testament. Jesus says to him, follow me. And what does Matthew do? He leaves everything to follow Jesus. We talked last time about how ultimately we may see that as outsiders looking at Matthew as though he lost everything in that moment. But Matthew in his gospel doesn't record it that way. Matthew skips out on that detail because ultimately I believe Matthew saw that in that moment he gained everything. And that's what it is to follow Christ. Here's Jesus in the midst of these outcasts though. As Matthew's saved, he calls together this dinner party. He wants to honor Jesus. Jesus is the honored guest as he invites in all of the outcasts. I mean, Matthew's been caught up in a corrupt system for years. Who are the friends that he's going to invite? Other tax collectors, other sinners, prostitutes, those who are caught up in any manner of wayward ways are gathering here with Jesus at the table, sharing in a meal with the great physician. And as this is happening, we see these Pharisees stepping forward, the ultra-righteous individuals of Jesus' day, and they say, why is it that you eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? And in the verses right before our passage today, Jesus had this to say. It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That, my friends, that that, verse there, that's a succinct summary of what it is that we need. The change that we ultimately need, the change that each one of us should be gearing our lives toward is this understanding that we are spiritually sick we are in need of a physician who can make us well none of us is right on our own and therefore we all need to turn away from our self-sufficient sick sinful lives through repentance and make a turn to christ in order that we might follow him that's a big change and not everybody is on board with a big change like that Well, that's the context right before our passage today. Let's see how the Pharisees respond to Jesus' work to heal the spiritually sick. And I'm going to recommend a change this morning. Because I just came back from vacation. One of the things that my family and I like to do while we're out on vacation is to visit other churches. It gives us a chance as we're out in a different place. We were down at the beach this past week in the uh, Harker's Isle, Atlantic Beach area. And as we were there, there's a church that we love to frequent when we take our vacations down that way. And as I was there in the church service, and the time came for the reading of the Word, I I just noticed that my kids, as well as several others in the sanctuary, were just kind of playing with their phones. They were dealing with coffee or trying to get things squared away with some other bit, and they just were not putting the focus into the Word of God. So let me recommend a change today. Can we stand together while we read the Word of God together? Stand with me. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, and we'll begin in verse 33. Here we read. 
And they said to him, The disciples of John often fast and offer prayers. The disciples of the Pharisees also do the same. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? But the days will come, and when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And he was also telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he will both tear the new and the piece from the old will not match the old. The new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins and no one after drinking old wine, wishes for new, for he says, the old is good enough. Herein ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. When change comes, it's out with the old and in with the new. This passage exemplifies that so well. So let me hone in as we dig into this passage on five reasons that it's out with the old and in with the new because of what Jesus Christ has done. The first is this. Because Jesus Christ has come for us, it's out with the old waiting and in with the new wedding. This is what we find in, in, in verse 33. Because here in verse 33, Jesus receives an inquiry that triggers the teaching that we see in all that follows in the remainder of this passage. Verse 33 says, They said to him, the disciples of John offer fast, often fast and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees also do the same, but yours eat and drink. So there's an implicit question that comes out in what they're saying to Jesus in this moment. Those who are communicating with Jesus are essentially asking here, why don't your disciples fast like everybody else who's respected on the religious map i mean you got the disciples of john the baptist you got the disciples of the pharisees they're all fasting but your disciples are not fasting why aren't you guys getting with the program why aren't you hyper religious like the rest of us why aren't you showing everyone else what your capabilities are in a spiritual realm and who's asking this question well luke simply words this as they said to him here so that points us back to who the they is in verse 30, which was the Pharisees who were grumbling at Jesus in verse 30 about how he was eating with those tax collectors and sinners. And so it's the Pharisees who are again asking and essentially grumbling again here in verse 33 about the practice of fasting. Now the Pharisees shift their focus and decide to criticize Jesus on what his followers were doing and not fasting and neglecting this practice of fasting. Now, what is fasting? Fasting is just a matter of doing without something for a certain amount of time in order to heighten your sensitivity, in order to heighten your longing with an expectation that God is going to work in the time when you are deprived from that certain thing. Now, most common in the Bible, we see that the fasting uh, that, that is done is, is a fasting of food. It's a staying away from food, abstaining from food for a particular amount of time in order to focus your energy on something else. Now, <clears throat> the Pharisees were big into fasting. Many Jews fasted, in fact, not just the Pharisees, but the Pharisees were this uber-religious group that always took things to another extreme. 
Now, biblically, there was a requirement for one fast a year, and that fast was to happen on the Day of Atonement, that day when the high priest was to go up to uh, the, the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice for the atonement of sins for the nation of Israel. That's the only fast that was required in the law of Moses. But the, the, the Pharisees had this practice of kind of taking things to another extreme, and this was certainly a case where they did that. Now, there were various instances throughout biblical history when the people of God had chosen either to gather or individually to repent of something or to, to focus their energies on thing or to seek, uh, seek deliverance in some matter. And so they would decide as a group to enter into a fast. So that Day of Atonement is not the only example of a, of a fast that we have in the Old Testament, but the only requirement of the law was this Day of Atonement sort of fasting. When individuals were waiting for God to act through a situation they were going through. So there's this, this idea of waiting that kind of goes along with the idea of fasting. Now the Pharisees had this, this, this practice where they would ultimately fast two days a week, every week. So on Mondays and Thursdays, they would go the entire day without food so that they might kind of show others around them. Jesus ultimately calls them out in Matthew chapter 6 for this practice because they're really more worried about what everybody else is seeing than they're worried about the waiting. But the idea behind the fast was that you would be waiting for God to act. You'd be waiting for his deliverance. And so the Pharisees took that two days a week. And and the Bible doesn't say it, but I got to think that there must have been a buffet at Shoney's on Tuesdays and Fridays because here they are, Mondays and Thursdays, every week going through this practice of fasting and and not only would they establish these regulations for themselves but jesus talks about how they would tie up heavy burdens and lay them on others because they expected everybody else to go to the nth degree going above and beyond the law in their practical applications they expected everybody else to do the same things that they were doing and so here's the pharisees living out what we could ultimately describe as a life of legalism Legalism just means that we're relying on the law in order to earn our own salvation, our own ability to live out the regulations of the law. We talk about our legal system in America, right? We're talking about the system that deals with the law. So here we've got the Pharisees trying to live out the nth degree of their application of what the law should look like, and then they require everyone else to do the same thing. And so when they come to Jesus essentially asking, why don't your disciples live with a holiness that can be shown off like ours? They're, they're essentially saying, why can't you be like us? Why aren't your disciples waiting for God to act like our disciples are waiting for God to act? And Jesus answers this question with a question. Jesus does that so often. He's ultimately drawing out the response of individuals who are talking to him and asking a question in response to a question. He causes individuals to have to wrestle with their own understanding of what it is they're asking him. But in verse 34, he says, You cannot make the attendance of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them, can you? That's a pretty remarkable statement. I I think we tend to gloss over this one. But Jesus is at a meal. He and his disciples are eating and drinking with the worst of the worst sinners. And when somebody calls him out on it, Jesus says, look, me and my followers are at a wedding. 
why would, why would you fast at a wedding? Now, can you imagine going to a wedding where the couple is present, but everyone is sad and gloomy and unwilling to eat? Anybody ever been to a wedding like that? No, weddings don't go like that, right? We don't expect that sort of mentality at weddings. Who wants to go to a wedding like that? Nobody, right? Weddings are times of celebration. Those who attend the wedding are friends of the happy couple. They've been invited to celebrate this moment in the life of the bride and the groom. Now, I've been to a a few ceremonies through the years, a few wedding ceremonies, where where the bride and groom opted to take pictures right after the service. Any of you ever been to to weddings like that? And then everybody goes into the fellowship hall, and they're kind of, you know, waiting around, ho-hum, while the pictures are taken. Have you seen anybody in that moment run up and grab something from the cake? Like, let me cut a slice off of this right now, right? You know, the bride and groom will be here soon enough. I'm just going to go ahead and enjoy some of this pretty white cake. No, you don't expect that, right? While the bride and the groom are away, what are they doing? They're fasting. They're waiting. They're holding up, waiting for the bride and the groom to get there. But when the couple returns, the party is on, right? The fasting is over. And Jewish weddings were like that. They progressed ultimately in three phases. So there was this initial phase where the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom would come together and they would arrange the marriage. The bride price would be transferred over to the the father of the bride. And then the groom would go back to this time. They were legally married at that point. But the groom would go back to his father's house and he would begin preparations for his new bride. And that would take a matter of time, a matter of weeks. And once this process was done... Once he got the approval from the father of the bride that things were ready for her to move and to be transferred, then they would enter into this celebration, this feast. Ultimately, that, day, that, that celebration would often last about seven days as individuals would gather around and they would celebrate this wedding feast, this covenant that was being established between a husband and a wife. And Jesus informs the Pharisees that his gathering with his disciples is like that third phase of the Jewish wedding. It's the celebration feast. Who is the groom? Jesus is the bridegroom here. Who is the bride? There's no bride that's mentioned in this passage, right? There's friends of the bridegroom. There's no bride mentioned. But ultimately we know that there's this consistent testimony throughout Scripture that the church is the bride of Christ. And ultimately, it is the friends of the bridegroom, those who are there. The the literal interpretation of that phrase is the sons of the bride chamber. There were individuals who were responsible for taking care of the bride chamber, this place uh, where this festival would take place. And ultimately, it's those who are serving the groom, the friends of the groom, who are, are taking care of the bride chamber, who are the bride, as they're preparing and trying and inviting others to come and be a part of this wedding ceremony. And so here we have the church gathered together with Jesus, Jesus and his bride. And he's eating. He's eating here with the vilest of sinners. He's eating with the most wretched crowd you could find in Capernaum at this time. And yet some of them are coming to faith in him. These are the ones that he has chosen. These are the ones who are entering into life with him. This, for Jesus, is a celebration for him to be among the vilest of sinners. It doesn't matter what they've done, where they've come from, what kind of background they've got. For them to be sharing with him in this feast and coming to him is a time of celebration for Jesus. And I just want to tell you, my friends, that it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, where you come from, what your background is. If you come to Jesus, 
there's a celebration awaiting you. Because Jesus enjoys his time with the vilest of sinners who will turn away from that sin and come to him by faith. This is a celebration. This is Jesus among his chosen ones. Surely Jesus' disciples wouldn't mourn at a time like this because he had come for them. It was out with the old waiting and in with the new wedding. Now I've got some upcoming weddings that I'm going to be officiating at. My first of those is going to be this coming Saturday with this happy couple that's sitting on the third row here. And so we're excited about the opportunity to participate. But I talked to Jerry and Jill just this past week about what kind of content of message would you want to proclaim at a, at a wedding you were gathering together. And what, what I asked them, would you give me the liberty at the end of this wedding to step forward and say something like this? What you have just witnessed is a very visible portrait of the gospel. Because at some point, this man had to make a proposal to this woman to enter into covenant with him. And she had to receive that proposal. And now they come together as one body. And they care for one another. Ultimately, the husband loves the wife as Christ loves the church. We see in Ephesians chapter 5. A wedding is a very visible portrait of the gospel. Because Jesus, you see, my friends, offers the invitation to each one of us to enter into a new covenant to make a change that will last for all of eternity in our lives, to come to him by faith and to receive his eternal blessing and care and guidance of our lives. And that's what, the, that's what a wedding is representing. And so that's what I hope to have the opportunity to communicate in these upcoming weddings. But it's a very visible portrait in our passage here today. But those poor Pharisees, they're busy carrying out a ritual that indicated that they were waiting for what was right before their eyes. They were waiting for God to act, and here was God in the flesh acting right before them. He was winning his bride, the church, to himself right before their eyes. But they couldn't even fathom changing from what they were so used to doing. And if you think you've gone too far, my friends, for this wedding, I want you to know, you're not too far. Because Jesus here, with the vilest of the vile, is expressing that he is in a wedding feast with those whom he desires. And he desires you. His grace is for you. His mercy is for you. His death is for you. And he extends to you his righteousness if you will come to him by faith. But there's also a word here for those of us who are Christians. We've entered into a covenant with a good husband. We've yielded our lives to one who is able and willing to care for our every need. We ought to be fully satisfied in him. We should no longer be fasting and waiting and longing for something greater to come in our lives. Our lives should never be characterized by gloom and despair and agony. Who said, whoa. Can you imagine a wedding where the bride won't eat, though. Can you imagine that? A wedding where the bride won't eat, what would you think? You'd think she'd married the wrong guy, right? If the bride's there and she's fasting through the meal, you'd think, well, she's probably a little bit upset. She probably doesn't like this guy. And I just want to say, 
a lot of Christians give me the impression that they've married the wrong guy. Because they live this life of gloom. They live this life like everything's despair. They find these things that are going wrong and they start to lean on those like this is the total destruction of all that I am. You've got a good groom. You've got one who cares for you. Live a life of celebration, a life of joy because Jesus has come to save you, his church. And lift up your head. Your groom has come. Let your life be a joy. Don't keep looking and longing for something greater. All you need is here before you. Can't you see that Christ is your prize? And because Christ has come for us, it's out with the old waiting, in with the new wedding. But secondly, because Christ is coming again for us, it's out with the old despair and in with the new desire. In verse 35, Jesus gives the first hint of his forthcoming suffering and ascension into heaven. There he says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. The word literally means snatched away from them. But they will fast in those days. Here Jesus gives this hint that this covenant that is being confirmed between he and his bride is going to be interrupted because he is going to be taken away from them in the midst of the days that they are now rejoicing in. He says, then the fasting will be appropriate for them. What's the time that Jesus is referring to here? Well, the most visible thing that we see in Scripture of when Jesus was snatched away from his disciples was the time of his crucifixion. As he was taken away from them by the Roman guards and put before those religious officials and government officials and ultimately nailed to the cross of Calvary to die this painful and wretched and shameful death. But there's also an element in which in Acts chapter 1, we see the disciples of Jesus there with him as he ascends into heaven. And he's taken up into the clouds. And the disciples are there looking on. And ultimately, what is the promise that we have from the angels in that moment? This one who has been taken away from you will return to you in a, in a like manner. There's this promise that Jesus is coming again. And so we live in a time now where even though Jesus is, has risen from the dead, he's risen also into heaven. He's ascended there. And he's preparing a place for us. And we live in a world that's being recreated, but we also live in a world that still has many pangs of birth. Would you agree? And so we face sickness and sadness and disease and death and evil in this time while we wait. And those of us who are Christians cry out with this new desire. Come again, Lord Jesus. Come again and relieve the sorrow. Come again and finish what you started. Come again and take us home. But Jesus says that they'll fast in those last days. Remember how I said that fasting is ultimately an expression of waiting? For Jesus to say that means that there would be something that his disciples were still waiting for even though the bridegroom had been snatched away. They're waiting for God to act again. And we would be left to despair, my friends, if we thought that the life that we experience here on earth was the end of things. But I want to tell you right now, God is not done with this wedding ceremony. 
God is not done calling his bride to himself because Jesus is coming again for us. It's out with the old despair and in with the new desire. This is our desire, to see Jesus come. We don't fall into sorrow when we face the trials here on earth. We fall into hope. We fall into a confident assurance that Jesus will come again for his own. That's what Paul wanted to convey to the Thessalonian church as they found themselves in despair. They needed to know that while they may be grieving, this grieving was not the end of things. So what did he write to them about? Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Can you visibly imagine what it would be like to be in that wedding ceremony? And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words is what Paul writes. Will there be trials? Yeah. Will there be persecutions? Yeah. Will there be death for Christians here on earth? Of course. But we do not despair as those who have no hope because Jesus is coming again. And Jesus can deal with death. Jesus will make all things new. Our despair has turned into a desire that he will hasten his return to bring his bride home. And we may grieve and we may fast in these moments but we do so with a steady hope. The bridegroom is coming back, my friends. And because Jesus is coming again for us, it's out with the old despair, in with the new desire. Thirdly, because Christ is covering us, it's out with the old rags, and in with the new righteousness. Next, Jesus tells these three sequential parables. A parable is just a, a lesson, a teaching technique, a, a way of explaining through something that you would be familiar with in everyday life of spiritual truth. And this is the first parable that we see in all of the Gospel of Luke. But let me tell you, we're going to see a lot more of them, all right? The first one out of the mouth of Jesus is here in these verses. And in this first parable, Jesus describes how you wouldn't take a brand new article of clothing and tear a piece of cloth off of it just to patch up an old article of clothing, right? You're not going to run out to the mall and buy a new pair of jeans to patch up that raggedy old pair of jeans you got back home. Why? Because you ruined both of them in the process. The new's got a big hole left in it, and the old has a piece that doesn't match. And then when you wash the old, what happens? The new starts to shrink, and it pulls away at the threads of the old, and ultimately they're both destroyed in this moment. They're both ruined. What's Jesus talking about here? Is, is he trying to teach us how to do our laundry? No, that's not what he's after, right? There's a spiritual truth in the midst of this. He's talking about the new thing that he is doing. He's talking about the new covenant that he brings. That's the new garment. It's the gospel. 
It's what he came to do. It's his work for all of mankind. You can't just take this new work of God and try to put a little piece of that on top of what you've been doing before. With an old piece of cloth. What, what do we know about an old piece of cloth? You got an old garment. What do you know about it? You can see the flaws in that thing, right? I mean, you can see that thing is worn down from its experiences. It's been some places it shouldn't be. When, when our son was about, oh, I don't know, he was probably in the fourth grade or so, he used to come home every day and, and we would buy new jeans for him and it would be about two days into the, into school wearing those jeans that those, those jeans would have big holes right in the middle of the knees. We came to find out that he was like running on the gym floor and he goes sliding on his knees every time. But as those things got older, they showed more of the flaws of what was going on in them, right? That's the way the old garment can be sometimes. It's worn from its experiences. It's been exposed to a lot of things. They've worn down its integrity. And that's the way life can be for us sometimes, isn't it? We try to live righteously. We try to earn our way into heaven. We try to show God and everybody else that we're good enough. But the more we try, the more we recognize our flaws. We try to show God and everyone else that we're good enough, but ultimately we find that we fall short. And the longer we go trying to make it on our own, the more the old garment of who we are gets stamped with the obvious flaws like unclean, sinner, wrecked in selfish pursuits, ready for the trash heap. And the longer we go it on our own, the more we realize how flawed this approach to trying to earn our way to heaven truly is. And the wrong thing to do in this situation would be to say, okay, Jesus has come, I'll just patch up my life. I'll take Jesus and let him fill in the gaps while I continue to trust in my own abilities and do the bulk of the work. Jesus will help me meet the requirements of the law. But my works, that'll be the main thing that gets me there. You know, the scripture says all of your deeds are as filthy rags. You don't need a patch. You need to be covered in his righteousness. But praise God as the Lord proclaims in Isaiah 1.18. Though your skins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Why? Because Christ offers us a new garment. You see, when we come to faith in Christ, we are found in Christ. We ultimately have the testimony that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 3. All of you who are baptized in Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. You know what God sees when he looks on us when we're clothed with Christ? He sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of the sinless one. He sees the spotless unblemished lamb who covers us and if you've entrusted your life to christ and you've clothed yourself with christ we are wearing his righteousness he is the covering for our sins time won't allow us to get to the remainder of these points but ultimately the objective of what jesus is communicating in these verses is this there is something new my friends, available to you. You can't just patch up the old way of things. You, you can't just swap out and keep living the life that you've been living and say that you're a Christian and, and think that going to church and going through the rituals and showing off and looking like a good guy in front of everyone else is going to earn your way to heaven. Because these things, my friends, will never be sufficient. 
Ultimately, we need something new. We don't need to put a little patch of a new garment on an old garment. We don't need to put new wine into the same old body of who we are. We need something that is totally new. We need a righteousness that is foreign to us, and Christ has come to provide that righteousness for us. You see, in our filthiness, in our state as the rags of God, which were nothing worth nothing more than being cast into the flames, Jesus came and took the punishment that we deserved. Jesus came as a man of sorrow is acquainted with grief. Jesus came and bore the humiliation of being stripped naked and beaten and having a crown of thorns etched into his head and being nailed to a cross to hang out for all the world to see. He took the shame so that you don't have to. He came as the sinless one to stand in our place and such that he could cover us and that we would have something new, something worth changing for. Something worth living for. And as Jesus died on the cross, he bore the penalty that we deserve. But praise God, God didn't keep him there. Because on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And as we just read in that First Thessalonians chapter 4 passage, that's a promise to each one of us. That if you are in Christ, then you too will be raised from the dead. Well, how do I get in Christ then, Jeremy? How can I find myself there? How can I be covered with his righteousness? How can I have a new life? Come to Jesus by faith. He's done all the work for us. He calls us to to turn away from our sins and to come to him as Lord of our lives. Now, does that mean that nothing's going to change? Does that mean we're still going to have the old wineskins? No. Everything will change if you come to Jesus. Because ultimately, He becomes the Lord of your life. He becomes the one who is guiding you. He is the master. He is the one who is directing you in that new life. But he's done all the work. He's done all the heavy lifting. And he invites you to come to him by faith. As I like to describe it, entrust your life to Jesus. And he, my friends, will do well and will take care of you, his precious bride. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the reality that you give new life to the most wandering outcasts of the world. And Lord, not all of us, when we look at ourselves, think of ourselves that way. But for your grace to be sufficient to the most vile, then we ultimately know that your grace must be sufficient for each and every one who is along that perspective. And so, Father, I pray that as we gather here this morning, you would help us to realize that the old is not sufficient, that our old sinful living can't just be something we put a a name of Christ on and continue living that way, that our own efforts to earn our own righteousness will not suffice, that we need something